Please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 6, Proverbs chapter 6. We'll be looking at Proverbs 6, and we want everyone to be able to look with us. And so if you don't have a Bible, get these guys' attention as they make their way down the aisle. They'll get a Bible to you that's marked to that passage in Proverbs 6. This is part of our ongoing series in the book of Proverbs, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Living Wisely in a Foolish World. We're closing in on the end of this series. But we've looked at a number of topics that God gives us in the pages of this book of wisdom that is called Proverbs. Today's topic is the subject that is the title uh, on the top of your insert in your program. We have an outline for you there. And you see that today's title is on the issue of sex. I sent a note to those that are on our email list yesterday so that you would be aware of that, particularly those of you that might have children who normally stay in the in the worship hour. But the Bible has much to say about this important topic, and the book of Proverbs has much to say about it as well. The October 12 episode of the Fox Network TV show Glee opened with a steamy girl-on-girl scene between two cheerleaders. Last month, three of the show's co-stars were featured in a racy photo spread for GQ magazine. I love these euphemisms for these magazines. That's Gentleman's Quarterly. That would be a euphemism like a gentleman's club, which is known as a strip club. But the November issue of GQ magazine had this spread from three of the show's co-stars. According to one news report, two of the actresses appeared scantily dressed, and one in particular, says the report, seems unable to smile without making a pouty, open-mouthed expression. Now this is prime time, a primetime show that's targeted to teens. But the actors who play on the show as teens are actually in their 20s, in their mid-20s. One report a couple of weeks ago said Glee is the number one show on network television. I was glad to find out that that report was, was wrong. Glee's not number one. Dancing with the Stars is the top show on network television, which once again revives my faith in what Sean Hannity and other conservative commentators constantly tell us is the common decency of the American people. And I say that fully tongue-in-cheek. I mean, at least there is a wholesome show like Dancing with the Stars at the top. And Glee is second. Now this trend by the networks to offer more and more shows on prime time that push the boundaries even further has been going on for the last decade. The Parents Television Council says this, traditionally known as the family hour, the first hour of prime time was once a place for programming the whole family could enjoy. Television broadcasters exercising their corporate responsibility to act in the public interest reserved adult-themed shows for later in the evening when the youngest viewers were likely to be asleep. In recent years, however, the broadcast networks have pushed more and more adult-oriented programming to the early hours of the evening. The family hour time slot includes programs with a start time between 8 and 9, and here is what the Parents uh, Television Council found. 
They did a a study for a period of time for that particular hour, and they say there were 2,246 instances of violent, profane, and sexual content in 180 hours of original family hour programming. Or that translates into about 12 and a half instances per television hour. There was one instance of objectionable content every three and a half minutes of non-commercial airtime on the average. Only 10.6% of the 208 episodes that they looked at were free of any violent and sexual content and foul language. They say that since 2000 to 2001, violent content during the family hour has increased by 52.4%. Since 2000-2001, sexual content has increased by 22.1%. They also say the Fox network is the overall worst offender, with 20.78 instances of objectionable content per hour, per hour almost 21 instances. In my one session at our annual family camp this year, I asked this question of the parents. I said, are the, are the Twilight movies really good for your girls? Is Miley Cyrus really good for your child? In August of last year, she appeared on national television and performed a pole dance. One news outlet said 95% of the show consisted of pole dancing and pelvic thrusts. That was on the Cheap Teen Choice Awards show. Are you surprised? We shouldn't be. Billy Ray Cyrus posed with his daughter a few years ago in unseemly pictures. Disney, that markets her show, Hannah Montana, is out to make money and to market Hannah. And by the way, I said at our family camp, those boys your daughter wants to make herself attractive for, those boys really like Miley Cyrus. Sex sells. And Hollywood does not care a whit about your child. It cares about money. If you get a cute girl or a nice-looking guy... They will do all they can to sexualize him or her because it makes money for them and it puts pressure on your teen to be like them. The power of the media to sell is well documented. Let me give you some quotations. Some of these are going to be how what we watch we try to emulate and how, I'll give you some quotations of how some actors and actresses know this and they avoid television for their own families. A brief candy cameo in E.T., the extraterrestrial, immediately sent sales of Reese's Pieces into orbit. Sales increased 65% after the film's release. Following the debut of Charlie's Angels, karate lessons for young women increased 50% nationwide. The scene in Mission Impossible 2 of Tom Cruise's mountaintop experience involving instructions received via his sunglasses caused Oakley sunglass sales to soar to $100 million in the quarter following the movie's release. That's up 39% from the same quarter the previous year. One little bakery in New York says this, Fans come in all the time looking for whatever it was Sarah Jessica Parker was eating. 
We get lots of people from middle America through here several times a week, and that was when Sex and the City was on. Now, do you think that if TV and movies can impact buying habits, that it can influence other things as well? And so actor Luke Wilson says, I remember being affected by the sex scene in the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. I was 10 years old when I saw it. And I still remember the guy who let me into the movie. Matt Smith of The Real World said this, I got to see the impact the show has had on young people, which can be scary. One of the most terrifying things I've had happen was meeting a seven-year-old girl in a grocery store who said, I thought it was so funny when your roommate danced naked on the real world. Until you experience that, you really don't understand the impact that television has on kids. Oliver Stone said, film's a powerful medium. Film is a drug. Film is a potential hallucinogen. It goes into your eye. It goes into your brain. It stimulates, and it's a dangerous thing. It can be a very subversive thing. Tom Cruise. My kids, I don't like them to watch much television. We're focusing on reading, a lot of reading. They're allowed about three and a half hours of television a week. I can actually see the difference when they watch too much television in terms of their education, their attention span, and their behavior. Austin Powers co-star Vern Troyer said, I love children, but certain kids are too young to see these films. A four-year-old came up to me once, and her dad told her, Honey, do what Minnie me does in the movie. And she flipped me off. Jodie Foster. Movie characters' ideals become our ideals. Their thoughts become standards of our thinking and language. Their style of dress and movement are seen on the streets of our nation, and their moments of triumph and defeat become our successes and our failures. One screenwriter said, a cigarette in the hands of a Hollywood star on screen is a gun aimed at a 12 or 14 year old. And the gun will go off when the kid is an adult. We in Hollywood know the gun will go off, and yet we hide behind a smoke screen of phrases like creative freedom and artistic expression. Ted Turner, you know that everything we're exposed to influences us. Those violent films influence us, and the TV programs we see influence us. The weaker your family is, the more they influence you. The problems with families in our cities are catastrophic, but when you put violent programs before people who haven't had a lot of love in their lives, who are angry anyway, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Jamie Lee Curtis, star of the Halloween movie. What planet are you from that you think a horror movie is all right for a little child? The power of suggestion is powerful indeed. And companies will use and abuse whatever they need to in order to increase the bottom line. And then we and our kids feel pressured to look and talk and act like them. It sells. It works. A pastor friend of mine, uh, we were talking about this issue this week, and he said, it's not for nothing that if you go to the North American International Auto Show, that there are models sitting on the hoods of those cars. It's not because they know anything at all about cars. But it's because, in fact, sex sells. And over time, we just fit into it. And it becomes a way of life. And what was once unthinkable for us then becomes regular fare 
in our living rooms. And things that we will actually go out of our way to travel and to pay money to see. And you know, I'm not these days often surprised at what the world does through our culture. I'm saddened by it, but not much surprises me anymore. But I am very, very saddened and still a bit surprised when I see what the church does. And I see churches then cashing in on this prurient interest that has pervaded our culture. So much so that John MacArthur had to, or felt the need, and I appreciate him doing so, did a series of messages called the R-Rated Church. And what he was referring to is the number of series that have had titillating titles and content to them that have been done by well-known people over the last couple of years. Mark Driscoll did a series on the Song of Solomon where he used phrases from the Song of Solomon that no one's been able to find the equivalent meaning that he was able to find. Ed Young Jr. in Texas did a series, I'm told, where he had on the stage a large bed and he sat on the bed and then proceeded to talk about sex. There's something called the Triple X Church. Some churches have actually advertised Corn Sunday. Now what they're going to do is talk about the difficulties with porn, but they're using the prurient interest in order to draw people in. So we live in a culture where girls, for instance, are sexualized at an increasingly young age in their desire to look, in the current vernacular, to look hot. And boys in our culture can barely walk because they've chosen to have their pants around their hips so that they can show their underwear. And business executives plot how they can make money out of sex in a commercialized mass media culture. And friends, do you think for a moment that we can be passive with regard to this? In protecting our own hearts and in protecting the hearts of our children as well? Some of you told me that you saw Chris Anderson, Pastor Chris Anderson's blog entry this past week where he, who has four daughters, talked about how girls in particular are being targeted and how dads need to be fully aware of this and fully engaged with their daughters. And so this is what Pastor Anderson said on his blog. It's always amazed me how fathers lose their objectivity when it comes to the sexuality of their own daughters. He says, I use sexuality merely in the sense of being created as a sexual creature, not in the sense of orientation, activity, and so on. Let me explain. The typical adult male knows when an outfit is sexually attractive. If what a lady is wearing is tempting, hot in the modern vernacular, we can tell. But somehow most dads think differently when they look at their teen daughters, which is good in a way. I mean, a dad shouldn't be sexually attracted to his daughter, of course, but we should still be aware. He'd better notice whether what she is wearing or not wearing is, well, hot. Too often, though, we have a hard time thinking of our daughters as sexually attractive. He says, I get that. I call it denial. Somehow a bikini that would be sexy on a stranger is merely cute on daddy's little girl. Words stretching 
across her chest or bum in a way that would tempt a leer if worn by other women are just trendy when worn by his baby. Skimpy dresses, form-fitting jeans, short shorts, tight shirts that would be sinfully arousing on someone else are adorable on his little angel. And then he says, Dad, dudes, get real. Your daughter's curves aren't just sweet anymore, they're sexual. And that's a good thing. God made her that way. But you need to stop being a daddy in a isn't she precious way and start being a daddy in an over my dead body way. Look at your daughter objectively. Look at her as a female. Start being honest with yourself about whether her look is sexy rather than cute. Ask yourself whether what she's wearing would tempt you to lust if worn by someone else's daughter. Tell her part of her body's on display in a way that would be a stumbling block to you on another lady. In fact, tell her to change. With your wife's assistance, help her to understand how men think. Protect your little girl by being objective about the way she looks. This is happening at younger and younger ages. And yet, God in His wisdom said in his book devoted to this topic, Song of Solomon in Scripture, said three times, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What God is saying is, give it time. Give it all the time that you can before you begin to arouse that sort of interest in your young person. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Friends, this is a huge issue for us. An issue that we have to take seriously. Both for ourselves individually, for our families, and for our churches. God has things to say about it. We want to look at them together. Let's ask Him to help us, okay? Let's bow. Our Father, we thank You. For your marvelous, infinite wisdom given to us in the pages of Scripture. To straighten us out as we become immersed in a culture of sensuality. Oh Lord, we need to have cold water thrown on us in order to awaken us from the slumber that many of us are in. In this battle for the bodies and the souls, not only ourselves, but of our children. Help us to give it the serious consideration it deserves. And help us to emerge then from this this time, determined to be and to do what will bring honor to you and joy both to ourselves and to our children. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I ask you to turn to Proverbs 6. Will you look at verse 20? My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Keeping you from the immoral woman from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. 
Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. I call your attention to the outline that I've inserted, we've inserted in your program. For I want you to see three things that are demanded if we are to pursue any semblance of a pure life. A pure life requires, first of all, we have a blank for you there, but a pure pure life requires that we, first of all, clearly discern. That we clearly discern. Now, what does it mean to discern? Well, the word discern, it's one we sometimes use in churches and in Christian circles. So-and-so has discernment, or we need the gift of discernment. But what does it mean? It means this. It means to differentiate. It means to separate. So it means to see the differences between things. To discern. So a formal definition is the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and His ways from all others. That's discernment. How does God see this? And how does the way God sees this differ from the way the world sees this? Discernment. It's used, the word that's translated discern is used in the Old Testament 247 times. And it refers to the process by which one comes to know or understand God's thoughts and His ways through separating those things that are different. There's a New Testament word for it as well that has the idea that through the use of separating discrimination, a person makes judgments and decisions. And it's something that is honed in a developmental process. It's not just something you have or don't have, but you hone, you train, you exercise. And so Hebrews says this, Practice to have your senses trained to discern good and evil. And so the person who is discerning is somebody who practices, who exercises looking at what God has to say about a matter, and then regularly comparing what God has to say to see the difference between the propositions and those things with which we are confronted in the culture. And thus we develop discernment. If you're going to practice that and then develop this discernment, you have to do a few things. I have in your outline, you have to choose to whom you will listen. In chapter 6 and verse 20, you notice who these instructions are given to and thus who they are from. They are my son. This is counsel given from a father to his son. And he says, my son, do not forsake your father's teaching or your mother's teaching in verse 20. These are parents who are teaching their son at an early age in the home about this important matter of sexuality. So there's a lesson for us right away as parents. This is first and foremost our responsibility. To speak and to model before them. And so if you're going to choose to whom you'll listen, the best thing you can do, young person, is to determine, I'm going to listen to the wise counsel of my father and my mother if you're blessed to have a wise father and mother. But as you choose counselors, as your circle of 
counselors widens and you choose those to whom you're going to listen, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Ask yourself, is this someone I can trust? Is this person to whom I'm listening, is this someone that I can trust? Ask yourself a second thing. Do I have reason to believe this person will lead me toward godliness? Is it someone I can trust? Do I have reason to believe this is a person who will lead me toward godliness? Now apply that to who you listen to on television. You say, well, I thought you were talking about people. I'm talking about any voice that you can give your ear to. Whether on the radio, whether on through iTunes, whether on television, whether on the internet. You ask yourself, is this someone I can trust? Do I have reason to believe this person will lead me toward godliness? Because understand, when you turn on the TV, you're inviting counsel into your mind and into your living room and before your family. But somehow we think that's different. People can do and say all kinds of things through the more impersonal medium of television or the internet or the radio that if that person were sitting in our living room and said or did those things, we would throw them out. We need to begin thinking about those mediums as counselors in our day and age and thus susceptible to the warnings of Scripture. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And so when God Almighty says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, do you think he would exclude those who talk to you through the television? Or through the radio? You must choose to whom you will listen. And further, secondly, you must choose to where you will go. This father says to his son, In chapter 7. Will you turn over to chapter 7 for a moment? The same father who's began giving instructions on this matter of sexuality in chapter 5. We've seen some of it in chapter 6 and now in chapter 7. At verse 6, this father says to his son, chapter 7 and verse 6. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked a judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. You see what this father is saying? We're going to read on in a moment. This father is saying to this young man, he says, I've looked out and I've seen those who lack judgment. In particular, my eye was caught by a particular young man who is out at twilight toward the end of the day, just sort of hanging around, not sure he should be there, perhaps a little nervous, hands in his pockets. I know I shouldn't be here, but I'm drawn to this. So I just kind of want to be where the action is and see what happens. And the father says he lacks 
judgment. He's in the wrong place. He knows he should not be there. Now listen, friend. You can say to yourself, I've never gone to the red light district. I've never gone to the seedy part of town. But I'm telling you that many of us here have gone there on our screens. Have gone there on our televisions. Go there in our minds. So as you read this, and as we go through this instruction from a father to a son, make application to where we are in 2010. He's just hanging out. He's curious. He's in the wrong place, but he's there on purpose, not by accident. And then verse 10 says, And then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and she kissed him. And with a brazen face she said, seductively she comes on the stage is what this is telling us. Up through verse 13. We'll see what she says in verse 14 in a moment. But she comes on the stage and he's captured by her seductiveness. But he would not have been, would he, if he had not been there? You see, you first got to go there. And if you refuse to go there, you don't have to worry about her seductiveness. But many of us say, well, you know, I'm just a sports fan. And I just go to the sports website. I've gone to the sports website. I can't go to the sports website anymore. Because they don't just have sports at the sports website. You see, in our day, you can't just be a sports fan. You also have to be a moral leper as well. You have to be an alley cat sexually, apparently. That's the way they talk on the radio. That's what they put on the internet, too. And so they got their babe of the week. I came to get the scores. There's the babe of the week. So I don't go there anymore. And this is what she says in verse 14. I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows. Now is that weird or what? She's dressed like a prostitute. She's a seductress. But then she has this spiritual thing going on. I have fellowship offerings at home. I fulfilled my vows. Hey, I'm no, I know you are too savvy a guy to be seen with a common skank. just to be blunt. But don't mix me up with those people. I'm pretty high class. Especially if I'm on TV. And I'm a star. Verse 15, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I found you. There's nobody like you. She's on that screen and she's looking me right in the eye, man. And she has been looking her whole life to find me. Really? And I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt, perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband, verse 19, is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money. He'll not be home until full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. 
No one will know, is what she says. And you see, we live in a day when no one will know, right? Because it's just a click away. But see, someone will know. You'll know, and most importantly, God Almighty will know. At all times and in every place, He sees our hearts. And then these final instructions in verse 24, from a father to his son. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. In no uncertain terms, this father who cares about his son lets it be known the dangers that lurk beyond her seductive looks and the words. And so you have to choose where you're going to go. And that means where you're going to go physically. And it means where you're going to go mentally as well, first physically. You know, going no longer requires sneaking around, going to the seedy part of town. You can now invite the adulteress in by remote control. And so you have to choose, if you're going to have this discernment, where, who am I going to listen to and where am I going to go? Let me just say, friends, I do not know what it is that Hollywood is putting out at the movies that a Christian person can put money down for, go to a place to see, and be edified as a result. Now, there's some G-Kids movies. We go to see them. But that's like, there's like, you know, five of those out of 500. It's like looking for a diamond in a sewer. And yet it's become second nature for people who used to say, we don't do that, to make that a regular part of our routine. And so you've got to decide physically, where am I going to go? What am I going to fix my eyes upon in terms of movies, in terms of television? The psalmist said this in Psalm 101. I'll set before my eyes no vile thing. Some of you heard me say in a message from 1 Thessalonians 4 several years ago, tell a story of going into a studio apartment that was rented by a then seminary student. He was away, and for reasons I won't bore you with, a friend and myself were to stay at his apartment to kind of guard guard stuff. We didn't know this guy. I had never met the guy. The place was he was gone when we got there. And we walked in, he had a small TV in his studio apartment. And on the top he had Psalm 101 in verse 3. On the top of his television. I will set no vile thing before my eyes. And that unknown to me, still unknown to me, seminary student had an impact on me. Because this guy took this seriously. When he turns on his television, he's reminding himself of what he's going to choose to watch. That message from 1 Thessalonians 4 was because it says this. It's God's will that you be sanctified. That word sanctified means set apart, be different. These people who discern are people who are different. As a result of discerning, and it's God's will that you be different, that you be set apart. 
colon, here's one of the major ways that you're set apart from the culture. You avoid sexual immorality. You avoid it. You set up barriers to it. Obstacles that will keep it away from you because you know you're susceptible to it. So you discern, decide where you're going to go physically, but also mentally. Where's your mind going to go? What are you going to feast on? The Bible says in Philippians 4, here's what you should feast on. Whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. But if we're honest and we think about where our minds go in this sensual culture, and we feast our minds upon the drivel and the poison that the world is serving up, we would have to admit it's not on things described this way. Now at the end, I'm going to talk about things that we can do in order to redirect our minds. But for now, that's what God says. We must discern. But secondly, notice in your outline that we not only must discern, but a pure life requires that we properly desire. We correctly discern, we properly desire. Sex requires desire. And God's the one who created sex. And he's the one who gave the sexual desire that leads to the pleasure that goes with sex and also the procreation that comes out of it as well. It's God's idea, but it's been perverted by man. And this is what sin always does. It takes what God made to be good and distorts it. And so in the early chapters of your Bible, you see an example of this. The Bible tells us in the second chapter, Genesis, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were, and they had these two qualities to them. These trees were pleasing to the eye, and they were good for food. So all of the trees that the Lord set before, the first man and the first woman, had these two qualities. They were pleasing to the eye, and they were good for food. Then you come to chapter 3, and here's what it says as Eve looks upon the one tree that God says you're not to eat of. And notice what it says. This tree was also good for food and pleasing to the eye. Well, then why do you need that tree? They're all good for food and pleasing to the eye. Well, this verse gives us the reason. But it also had another quality. It was desirable. You see, this is the one I want. I don't want the ones God has given me. I want the one I want. And it begins with illicit desire. And in order for us to approximate a pure life, it requires that we properly desire them. And so God says, this one tree is forbidden. And so many have said, and you maybe have said this, we know it's that forbidden love thing. If you tell somebody they can't do it, that's the thing they want to do. So here's the answer. Don't tell anybody they can't do something. That's the wrong answer. 613 commands are given in the Old Testament by God in His law. 
613. God somehow didn't get the memo that you don't tell people not to do stuff. God says don't do it. And he knows that it arouses this forbidden love notion in our sinful hearts. But he does that in order to expose our hearts. To show that we have this illicit rather than licit desire. But if we're going to live a pure life, it requires that we properly desire. Desiring what is licit, desiring what is best. And how does that happen? That will only happen if the third thing I have in your outline is true. And that is a pure life requires that we fully delight. That we fully delight. That we find our joy, we find our delight in God and in His instructions. In chapter 6 of Proverbs that we read in verses 23 and 24, the father says to his son, My son, listen to these commands because they are light and they are life to you. They're a lamp for your feet. They're good. You can delight in them. You can take your joy in God and in His instructions and in His ways. But you'll only do that if you trust this God who gives these instructions, do I trust the heart of this God who has told me avoid this path at all costs and go in the direction that I have given you? That's why the psalmist said, we must taste and see. The Lord is good. You see, friends, God has provided for us and always will provide for us all that we need. And He has provided for us all that we need for our full joy, our full good, our full delight. But we doubt His goodness. And so, because we doubt His goodness, we don't trust Him and therefore don't delight in what He has provided. And then we look to other voices and we look to other means. That's what Eve did. God has provided this bounty for you. He has given you direction. He's given you life and light in His Word. He's told you what to do. But it's not good enough because this God is not good enough. The question for us then is, do we trust this God? That He will provide for us what is good for our joy and for our full delight. So I say at the bottom of your outline, the pursuit of purity requires... That we firmly believe that God's way is absolutely best. If you doubt that for a moment, you will succumb to the siren call of the seductress. And you will go the way that so many others have gone, your own route. And it all has its roots in doubting the goodness of God. If I'm going to get a man, i got to do it this way. If I'm going to get a gal, i got to play it this way. And God says, no, you don't. You play it my way and I will take care of you. The question is, do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you all see the title of this message up at the top of the screen, at the top of your sex cells? I do know how to spell. But it's a play on words. Sex does indeed sell stuff. 
But you know, in our day, sex is transmitted over cells. It's transmitted over cell phones. There's such a thing as sexting. Not just texting, sexting. And so CBS News said this, while it may be shocking, the practice of sexting, sending nude pictures via text message, is not unusual, especially for high schoolers around the country. Three teenage girls who allegedly sent nude or semi-nude cell phone pictures of themselves and three male classmates in Western Pennsylvania High School who received them are charged with child pornography. In October of last year, a Texas 8th grader spent the night in a juvenile detention center after his football coach found a nude picture on his cell phone that a fellow student sent him. And they say in this report, roughly 20% of teens admit to participating in sexting. One out of five. This is a serious felony. They could be facing many years in prison, CBS News legal analyst said of those six teens in Pennsylvania. But then she added, what are we going to do? Lock up 20% of America's teens? And so I call it sex cells, partly for that reason. But here's another reason. Sex cells, C-E-L-L, in the sense that it can and it will entrap you. If not used properly. It can and it has entrapped many. I don't prefer the word addiction, but there are people with pornographic compulsions who've been so engaged in it, so habituated to it for so long that they're entrapped now by it. And they're in their own sort of prison. And many of them know it and loathe it and hate it. But nonetheless, they're in the cell. They're in the trap. I say to you, if you're in that situation, the Lord God can help you. And we're here to help you. It will take work. It will take the means of God's grace. It will take accountability. But you will need help. But God gives you that help to escape that cell, to escape that trap. What do we need to do, first of all, to avoid it? And then what do we do to get out of it? And then we'll be done. What do we do to avoid it? We do not listen to avoid it. We do not listen to what the culture tells us about sex. And we do not listen because we desire what God provides. And the reason we desire what God provides... It's because we trust in God's goodness. How do you avoid this? You trust in the goodness of God who provides what you need and thus you're able to black out the sounds of the culture with regard to sex. And what does one who has been entrapped need to do? You need to talk to a brother or a sister, as the case may be. A woman to a woman, a man to a man. And come and say, I need help. I've been entrapped by this. We all struggle with sin. That may be the sin that you're struggling with, that you're entrapped by. You can come to me, one of our leadership team, another brother or sister, and the, and the Lord. And then what we need to do is help you to begin to regain this trust in the God who you didn't trust to provide what was best for you. But God gives us the means to do that through his word, through his spirit, and through accountability of his people. Friends, I pray 
but this has been a warning shot to many. I pray that it will be a lifeline to some who are entrapped, but that all of us will see the seriousness of this issue that God Almighty has spent a lot of time speaking about, that our culture is so immersed in and is so dangerous for we as individuals and for our families and for our churches. Now, the only way you're going to have this desire and trust in the goodness of God to follow His ways rather than the ways of the world is if you have come to Him through Jesus Christ. He gives you His Holy Spirit and He changes and realigns your desires. And how does that happen? How do you begin a relationship with this God who is good? You realize that you're like Eve in the garden. We all are. That we have wandered our own way because of our own desires. Realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. Repent of your sin. I no longer want to go my way. I want to go your way. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And as we do, I encourage you, if you've never come to God through Jesus Christ, to acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge Him as your sin bearer. Tell Him that you want to give Him your life and follow Him with your life. He will begin changing you from the inside out. Let's bow together. Father, this is a sobering message for me and for us as your people, for everyone here. Because it's such a powerful subject. And we are so immersed in it in our culture. And its power is used in such illicit and distorted ways. And yet we're reminded that it is, the sex is a gift from you. It's your idea. And if used and pursued your way, it brings great joy and great delight. And yet, Lord, we have not trusted you like our first parents. We doubted that you had our ultimate good in your loving heart. And so we went a different way. And we found ourselves on that corner. We found ourselves flirting with that danger. And we found ourselves sucked in by it. Some have been entrapped now by it. Thank you, Lord God, for caring enough for us to warn us about this. To help us to stay off of that path. To show us how we can get off of that path if we've embarked upon it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the answer to our wandering hearts. Who begins to change us from the inside out. Giving us his Holy Spirit when we receive the gift that he has provided on the cross of Calvary. Substituting his perfect life for our sinful life. Lord, I pray that there are people right now who are receiving Him as Savior and bowing their hearts before Him as Lord. I pray that right now there are people who name Your name as followers of Jesus, but who recognize that we've been unfaithful in allowing our hearts to wander to the idol of lust. I pray that as a result, Lord, there will be changes in Your people this week that will bring forth good fruit in our personal lives, in our homes, in our church as well. We want to honor You and bring glory to You. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.